To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Do which is to get it done. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. It's White House Correspondents' Dinner weekend, but Team Trump will not be in attendance. We are awaiting feedback now from President Trump himself. We will bring the president's remarks to you as they happen. President Trump getting a GDP boost that he needs for 2020, along with new growth risks. We're going to talk about some of those growth risks, including potential trade uncertainty. That's right. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe at the White House going to be meeting over the next 24 hours with senior administration officials and President Trump himself. What does that mean? We have an all-star panel joining me in studio in our 99-1 studios in Washington, D.C. Ben Chang is former White House National Security Council Director of Communications for the Obama administration. Mark Ross is founder of Caracal Global, which specializes in thought leader strategy for executives and entrepreneurs working at the intersection of globalization, disruption, and politics. A busy day, all of that, plus former Vice President Joe Biden says he raised $6.3 million on day one as a presidential candidate. As we await comment from President Trump, this as he has uh, concluded uh, remarks that he gave earlier today at a campaign-style speech. Classic Trump, classic Trump on the campaign trail, and we're going to hear directly from uh, President Trump, we're awaiting that playback, and we will bring it to you in its entirety as it happens, so you can hear directly from the president and his remarks. With me while we wait, Ben Chang is a former White House National Security Council Director of Communications in both the Obama and Bush W. White House or W. Bush uh, administrations. Mark Ross is founder of Caracal Global, which specializes in the intersection of business and politics and globalization. Did you guys see this new report? Here in D.C., things are a little slow. So there's all these reports coming out. And no, I'm not talking about the Mueller report. President Trump's reelection hopes, this according to the Bloomberg Terminal, have always hinged on supercharging the U.S. economy and data showing faster than expected growth provided him a boost just as he prepares to ramp up his campaign. If you look at gross domestic product, it rose at 3.2% annual rate in the first quarter of uh, 2019. Uh, And the president, for his part, he was asked about this earlier today, and he actually weighed in on it, Ben. And I want to get your take on it too, Mark, in terms of how the GDP growth might impact and really cast a shadow over this 2020 election. Here's President Trump. The GDP is an incredible number. But remember this, not only that, we have a great growth, which is growth. We have great growth and also very, very low inflation. That was President Trump earlier today before he took off for the NRA, the National Rifle Association, a key constituency for him. Uh, Talking about the GDP, is 3.2 GDP growth good enough, Mark Ross? Yeah, it's a great number. He should be really pleased with that. Um, Really? It was a third, it was, you know, people thought it was going to come in the two. So it was 3.2. 
fantastic. And I think the economy for Trump is an issue that all Americans care about, not just his base. This allows him to look presidential, to connect with folks across the country. Absolutely. This is the best thing that's happened to him this week. Ben Chang is ready to go, and he's shaking his head. It's his first time on the program. Is 3.2 GDP good enough to get him reelected? Thanks very much, Kevin. Long-time listener, first-time appearance. <laughs> and I was raising my eyebrows not because I ever disagree with my friend Mark, but rather I am we wondering— got to, i got to cut you off. You know why? Oh. We have President Trump's playback. Here's the president Here's the of the bonus. United States. Here he is. things that we're talking about, but I'll respond to that question at a later date. Okay? And, Thank you. And just to follow on your comments earlier today and last night Oh, I think absolutely. If you look at, yeah, if you look at, if you look at what's been happening and uh, all of the things you've been seeing with the insurance policy statement from two agents that are now gone, uh, if you look at many of the elements of uh, intrigue and, frankly, uh, we're going to be seeing a lot over the next couple of weeks, things that uh, a lot of people haven't seen. what took place here was a very, very terrible situation. How this whole ridiculous uh, $35 million unlimited personnel, uh, how this all started, I think you will find of great interest. Most of you know the answer to it anyway. The, the fair press, the good press, the, really the people that know what they're doing or the people that are indeed uh, fair, uh, they know the answer to it. So uh, we're going to see. It's going to be very interesting. but. What took place over the last period of almost two years, and really before that, it was really much before that. In all fairness to Robert Mueller, uh, things happened long before he even started. And what took place is a disgrace to our country, and it hurt our country. And a lot of people have been let go, and I don't mean by me, they've been dismissed, they've been fired, they've left in disgrace, and it really is a sad moment for the country, but I think ultimately it's going to be very good. It's going to be a healing factor. Thank you all very much. Thank you. 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 President Trump talking ahead of the Japanese trade talks at the White House expected to happen Throughout the weekend, including tomorrow, he's going to be meeting with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. The president saying that trade has gotten very complex with Brexit. He said that trade negotiations with China are going well. In terms of his meeting with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, that he's looking forward to discussing the trade deal with the United States. And the president said that he will also discuss North Korea and meeting with Shinzo Abe. The North Koreans, of course, North Korea leader Kim Jong-un meeting with, get this, Uh, Russia President Vladimir Putin earlier this week. And the president wrapped up those quick remarks by saying that trade talks with Japan are moving very, very quickly. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I want to welcome our national audience. Uh, We are broadcasting live from the 99.1 studios in the nation's capital of Washington, D.C. With me for the hour, Ben Chang. It's his first time on the program He's with me in studio. He's the former White House National Security Council Director of Communications for both the Obama and W. Bush administrations. Mark Ross is a friend of the program. He's founder of Caracol Global, which specializes in thought leader strategy for executives and entrepreneurs, uh, working on the intersection of globalization. And and Mark, you know, first question to you. I mean, we just heard from the president, and, and essentially it's all about trade. What does the U.S. need to get out of 
the Shinzo Abe, the prime minister of Japanese meeting. Yeah, Trump wants two things. He wants a deficit reduction. That is the trade deficit. He'd love to see that number come down. That's an easy uh, number he can talk about in the campaign. And also, he'd like to see the Japanese import more agricultural goods, especially from the uh, Midwest. So, Ben, earlier, ahead of the president's remarks, uh, we, we took the breaking news, obviously, but with the GDP number in the first quarter being 3.2 gross, gross domestic product for the first quarter of, of 2019, the president, in a celebratory mood, Mark's saying, all right, yeah, he's, he's got a little bit to be, to be celebrating about. But then you talk about these trade fronts and how all of the globalization, as the pres- we just heard from President Trump, whether it's Brexit or whether it's the Japanese and, of course, China— should he really be that optimistic with 3.2? Thanks very much, Kevin. And I think there's two ways to approach this. I mean, this is a bit of a double-edged sword. The president campaigned on the uh, evils and downside of globalization. He campaigned on wanting to reform the way we approach trade as a country. We're talking about strong numbers on GDP and employment and so on. Within Washington, this is popular for us to do. Many of your listeners right now across the country, folks uh, here at Bloomberg, will understand that the Rubber hits the road when we talk about perception and how do people really feel uh, their pocketbooks are affected and how resilient they will be beyond monthly or quarterly numbers. And so I think within Washington, these numbers mean a lot, but the translation will be how are people feeling across the country. And with trade, ultimately, uh, you know, I came from a background in the Bush White House and the Obama White House where trade was a national security issue and we were committed to open and free trade. Right now, we're seeing that landscape disrupted by this president, and I'm wondering how much the reality of trade forces will force his team to sort of come, be, be tethered to some of the more traditional approaches. And Steve Bannon, to your point, Ben, Steve Bannon, the president's chief architect uh, back during the campaign year and then a White House advisor, he was up at the St. Regis in New York City earlier this week and essentially saying that Wall Street was working with China on on the issue of tariffs, and he said President Trump – uh, you should absolutely, uh, absolutely uh, go even more aggressive and listen to Peter Navarro on the trade talks. Of course, Peter Navarro, Steve Bannon, kind of in the same uh, uh, nationalistic type of wing of, of isolationist economic policy, Mark. Yeah, Steve Bannon actually called uh, Wall Street and corporate America the lobbying arm of the Communist Party. The lobbying arm of aggressive. the Communist Party. Great campaign rhetoric for the, Mr. Bannon uh, the, the, again. Wait, wait, wait. The, think about this. The lobbying arm for good. the Communist Party. So At the St. Regis, no less. Go right, ahead. we should let the Communist Party know this. St. Regis, great is. truffle fries. Go ahead. Uh, from the, Yeah, from a communication standpoint, great rhetoric once again for Mr. Bannon, but uh, a lot of nonsense. I mean, if you look at, uh, say, Apple, 20% of the revenue being generated – in China alone, GM and Ford selling more cars in China than they are in North America. What the problem I have with uh, kind of the Bannon Navarro wing of the uh, Republican Party is they point out a lot of problems and faults with our trade relationships, and certainly they can be reformed, but they have no solutions. How are what, what is their plan to replace 20% of revenue being generated from Chinese consumers buying Apple products? But see, this is where it's interesting. He makes a good point, Ben. But this is where it gets interesting in the sense that if you go to Youngstown, Ohio, if you go to the Lordstown General Motors plant in Ohio, key battleground state, obviously, in, in the 2020 election, this type of Steve Bannon-esque rhetoric resonates. And it doesn't just resonate with, with the base. I love how we always say the base, as if you can define the base. It actually resonates with folks who are looking into Senator Bernie Sanders, folks who were frustrated in the Democratic 2016 Democratic primary about NAFTA 
And it's that reshaping of the trade policy message that helped fuel, in many reasons, 70,000 voters who switched over from previous President Obama to the current President Trump in states like Pennsylvania, most most notably in, in the western part of Pennsylvania, uh, Ohio and Youngstown and, and Detroit, suburban Detroit, Michigan, as well as Wisconsin. So it's not like this trade message doesn't resonate when he goes aggressive, Ben. I totally agree. But I think four years later, where we are is that now the president needs to show results. Right. So it's one thing to have campaigned a few years ago on the prospect of uh, re- re- disrupting and reforming our approach to trade. But now he has to have results on that. And yes, we have GDP numbers. But are those folks in Youngstown and Detroit actually feeling the benefits yet? We all know this takes time. Even the benefits from the Obama administration steps uh, uh, are being felt now. And so it's, it's a short runway that he's given himself to show results. Well, it's going to be interesting because let's say Trump today, he's having uh, dinner tonight with the prime minister of Japan. They create uh, some deal and the prime minister of Japan decides to buy a billion, three billion dollars worth of soybeans from Ohio. Right. That's a positive development. In some ways, I feel like the trade debate is being so overshadowed. Politicians for the last four or five cycles have kind of used the same kind of anti-trade messaging and it's worked. Nobody's really talking about the benefits of being able to sell goods and services around the world. In some ways, it's like open territory. It's not a, it's a very complex issue to explain, but selling more products, selling more software, selling more soybeans, this is a positive thing. So in some ways, you can't have, you can't have, you need both things, essentially, right? That's right. Absolutely. And I, I think the other element in all of this that, that's a little bit lost but, but should be in front of us is innovation, right? And so in a lot of these trade agreements, we're talking about not just products and tangible materials, but, but information and knowledge. And look, uh, as Kevin and Mark, you know, I come from Princeton University right now where we're looking at next generation innovation and how do we have partnerships to fuel that. I'd like to see this administration double down on our research and innovation capacity in this country and developing it in unexpected places like Detroit, for example, so that we can keep a leading edge uh, in, in the global economy. Well, speaking of Detroit, as we all know, Vice President Pence was in suburban Detroit this weekend at a Ford automotive plant uh, promoting the benefits of the USMCA. So once again, we have the Trump administration <laughs> saying trade deficits are bad, globalization is bad, but at the same time, we have the other half of the administration saying trade is good, we need to move more product across our northern and southern borders. I want to reset on trade talks. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio National, uh, Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio Chief Washington Correspondent. And I want to welcome our national audience as we broadcast live from the uh, Bloomberg 99.1 studios in the nation's capital of Washington, D.C. I also want to, of course, uh, say thank you to Ben Chang, former White House Counsel, National, former White House National Security Counsel, Director of Communications, uh, and his first time on the program, he served in both the Obama and George W. Bush administrations, and Mark Ross, founder of Caracal Global, which specializes in thought leader strategy for executives and entrepreneurs working in the space of globalization. Let's just go around the world. I feel like we could call it, like, you know, remember that game when you were a kid, when I was growing up outside of Philly, around the world, that basketball game? Let's go around the world with trade policy. Let's just zip right through it right now. President Trump is set to have dinner with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and have meetings tomorrow. From the U.S. perspective, they want to see a penetration of agricultural markets. They also want to see some more easing in the sense of an opportunity for the U.S. to make more inroads on a host of different technology fronts as well, as well as get them on board with North Korea. 
But from the Japanese perspective, maybe they'll slice and dice that trade deficit that so often frustrates President Trump. He hates that trade gap. Uh, if uh, the U.S. doesn't have auto tariffs, as, as you were mentioning, Mark, about how just crucial the auto sector is and those key battleground states, politically speaking, of Michigan, Wisconsin, obviously Detroit, Michigan, uh, and the Europeans don't want auto tariffs. So everyone, no one around the world wants the president's auto tariffs. And President Trump says, I am tariff man. While all of this is going on, Chinese President Xi Jinping is touting this one road, one belt initiative and is looking to Europe for an economic uh, lifeline, lifesaver. What do we call it? Lifeline, lifesaver. Uh, and is signaling that maybe he would be willing to get on board with some of the notion that uh, that President Trump and the administration are signaling for. Secretary Mnuchin of Treasury and U.S. Trade Representative Lighthizer are going to be over there next week. Uh, and Chinese President Xi Jinping said within the last 48 hours, quote, we attach great importance to fulfilling multilateral and bilateral economic and trade agreements reached with other countries. I want to talk national security, and I want this to take us to North Korea. But from a national security standpoint, Ben Chang, former communications director for the National Security Council, why aren't we focusing more on the issue of national security from a nonpartisan standpoint, especially when it comes to technology transfers? That's a great question, Kevin, and I appreciate it. And I, I do long for those days when we were able to have those conversations, both uh, down Pennsylvania Avenue, but also up in Congress. Um, this is pretty fundamental. And, and back on the topic of trade, I, I, I think it's worthwhile stepping back and having a larger view as to the various levers of national security, influence, and power that we have, and all the things we're trying to safeguard, along with those important jobs in Dearborn and, and, and Youngstown. Um, we need to return to a place where there's a consensus around what our national security values and principles are and how we exert influence around the country. And what I lament is that we have been in a position the last couple of years of tearing down the institutions that we spent so long building up. Both like on the what? Like which institutions? So the attacks we've had not only on security uh, institutions such as NATO, but also our diminished role at the U.N., which not only is the Security Council that we're used to seeing, but is all the specialized agencies within the UN framework that advance many of our interests, from intellectual right. property protection to other things. But what do you say then to President Trump, who says, well, why isn't NATO, NATO members paying their fair share? Well, two things. One is that, that they are stepping up, and two, that that conversation does need to be had with, in a way that doesn't cede ground to the Russians, for example. Right, but if, if but I mean, you think if, if you ask for more money, it's not like they're going to be like, all right, let me give you, like, okay, if you ask nicely, I mean, if you got to ask somebody for money, I mean, it might take a mean tweet. Well, so there's a request for money, and then there's a request for having our back. And the thing about the Article 51 obligations, remembering the history of NATO, is that the NATO members have had our back throughout all of this. Of course. And that, that, it, that NATO still, like the UN and WTO and other institutions, are a force multiplier for us. And that basic premise was thrown out the window with many of the approaches of the current administration. But, Mark, I think this comes back to, to NAFTA. I think, I, I, I think it comes back to where I grew up, Delaware County, Pennsylvania, suburbs of Philly. I think it comes back to Youngstown, which is, unfortunately, the folks are not feeling right, wrong, or indifferent the impacts or like that those institutions that you just named are adequately representing their voice. Right, Mark? No, I agree. And I think the thing about Trump, I think this is like a 30-year culmination of just kind of angst, if you will, against globalization. Um, 
and looking at factories. To your point, like I grew up in the industrial Midwest, and you, you'll see empty factories. You know, there's that's a very tangible item. When you see something empty, rusted out, and uh, de- decre- decrepiting, that's very uh, tangible. And people say this, this is not working. So I totally agree. I think our institutions that we've set up post World War II absolutely fantastic. I think we're blessed as a nation to have the World Bank right down the street from here. They have the UN. Uh, but these are institutions that enough people, sadly, in the Midwest don't fully appreciate. So the challenge is as we go forward. I don't think it's just the Midwest either. I don't think people are, are necessarily anywhere are like, this is what the World Bank did for me today. Or this is what the UN <laughs> did for me today. Right? I mean, am I, I'm not yep, trying to yep, be funny. Yep. As, a, but, as a guy who served twice at our UN mission, I completely agree. And so it's on us as, a, as, as public servants, as, as former government servants, to look at the way that we have explained the benefits and done a sales job, well, right, and built constituents and tell your story this. exactly, Ben. In, in this sense, as we as we ramp up for for North Korea talks, and I mean, you know, I covered uh, the, uh, the President Trump and North Korea leader Kim Jong Un uh, in both uh, Singapore, the Singapore summit, or yeah, no, the Singapore summit, because Putin was in Helsinki. Helsinki was Putin. Helsinki yeah. was Putin. So I was right. Yep. Singapore was. Gosh, when was you, first, isn't it crazy? Yeah. You just forget like where you are and what you're covering. Uh, but covering Singapore, the first summit, and how and how virtually like scripted it all was when Kim Jong Un and President Trump met, and there was Dennis Rodman there. I had to do like a double take. I'm like, what? And then I go to Vietnam, and I'm like, what? Holy Hanoi. I mean, what is going on here? There's no script. There's nothing. So you've got North Korea leader Kim Jong-un this week, Ben. This week, mm-hmm. Ben Chang, the former uh, National Security Council communications director, meeting with Russia President Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. And who did you say just met with them earlier as well? Xi. This should not be a surprise to any of us that in short order, uh, Kim, who has a short attention span, has shifted allegiances and shifted attention and has uh, seemingly run out of patience with our approach. Reality crashed in on the summits in Singapore and Vietnam. And the truth is that we need a much more sober approach to, to North Korea. And you see these debates happening within the administration, right? We're getting uh, read on fissures and so on about how to approach negotiating with North Korea. But how do you think we should approach North Korea? Well, I think we should approach North Korea through a a, a, a strength in numbers uh, uh, framework. So not necessarily re- resurrecting the six-party talk framework, but we did a lot more coordination with our allies in, allies in the region, I think, over the last two administrations than we have now. And I think we've had to take things more slowly in the sense of having those big marquee summits with more concrete tangibles rather than just aspirations. What do you say to folks? What do you say to folks who say normalizing this brazen thirty-something North Korea uh, leader dictator Kim Jong Un murderous dictator works? Right. Like, right. I mean, but yeah. but you know, I mean, stylistically, we you know the chairman of North Korea, right? Uh, you know the Dennis Rodman fan. What do? How do you? I guess. What do you say to folks who say, okay, well, he's normalized now and he's not isolated. He is engaging on the global scale. He's engaging with with the leaders of of countries. And by by having a dialogue, at least he is now engaging in some type of dialogue as opposed to just sitting there by himself and blasting off missiles like Rocket Man. 
I think that that news reports and intelligence would would tell us otherwise in terms of development of, of capabilities. Well, he's still developing them, but yes. but do you think that the communication with with the president, with the U.S., with Russia, with China is a positive thing as a whole? So I would say we've, he has received the bulk of rewards out of the last year year and a half of diplomacy, uh, and, and few of the negatives. He, so yes, he is now a figure on the world stage. He's had two summits with the U.S. president. He just was feted by the Russian president. He has all he needs as far as propping up his internal power structure and propaganda back at home. I want to what pl- does he have to give up for that? I want to play for everybody what President Trump had to say earlier today about North Korea. He was en route to the National Rifle Association rally, President Trump was, uh, earlier Friday morning. And he stopped and talked briefly with reporters. And he was asked about his relationship with North Korea. Here's President Trump on North Korea. I appreciate that Russia and China is helping us, and China is helping us because I think they want to. They don't need nuclear weapons right next to their country. But I also think they're helping us because of the fact that we're in a trade deal, which, by the way, is going very well. So Mark Ross of Caracal Global, which specializes in globalization, we heard from the national security perspective from Ben Chang. First time on the program, Ben. Uh, <laughs> um, we appreciate you coming in. But from the president says that China is 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 helping to press the economic situation and talks with China are helping to press and squeeze North Korea. Sure. Yeah. You agree? Well, I mean, sure. I mean, but it doesn't really mean anything. You know, like him saying that it's going well. It's always going well with China. Um, I think Kim Jong-un to me seems like a day trader. It's not surprising he's dealing a day with day trader. Yeah, he's just constantly looking for other ways to get attention, right? It's not surprising that he's meeting with Putin. That's a neighbor. Xi Jinping, that's a neighbor. So it's not surprising. In some ways, uh, the Chinese don't really like to deal with Kim Jong-un either, right? So in some ways, Kim was smart to say, hey, I'll spend some time with Trump, right? We'll shake things up. Uh, annoy the Chinese uh, and shake it up in the peninsula. So it's not surprising. Shake it up in the peninsula. What I, like, I think is I like interesting is what is Trump like? I, I just feel like sometimes he doesn't have the gravitas or like the curiosity. He too is like has a very short attention span. Like he wants quick wins, quick victories. Things are going well. All kind of empty rhetoric. This is a, a tough spot as a national security guy, right? As somebody who just is interested in the the firmament of our country's standing in the world. And it's dangerous. Um, that's not a profound insight in dealing with North Korea. Um, yes, the president acknowledged China and Russia having skin in the game. Let's keep in mind that they have their own agendas when it comes to North Korea. There's a certain appreciation, to use a word, of North Korea as a destabilizing force that saps our attention and energy. Right? right. And if you're China or Russia, that's not a bad thing. All right. Well, coming up, we're going to oh, go ahead, Mark. I was going to say what's interesting, too, which didn't get a lot of coverage, but our uh, British and French allies actually sent n- part of their navy through the Taiwan Strait today. So mm. we, too, also have some friends in the area creating a little bit of uh, problems with the Chinese. But it's very it's a great know. point. No, it's a great point. And coming up, we're going to stay with this. I want to thank uh, Ben Chang and Mark Ross uh, for joining me for the hour. I also want to thank our national audience. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio Chief Washington Correspondent. You can download our Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading my favorite app, the Bloomberg Business app. You can also check us out on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Uh, We stay. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Sound On. This is Bloomberg. 
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. It's Friday, folks. We've made it to Friday. It's finally here. We made it. It's actually a rainy day here in Washington, D.C. at our Bloomberg 99.1 studios broadcasting live from the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., I'm Kevin Cirilli, Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio Chief Washington Correspondent. I want to welcome our national audience as we talk about all things politics and policy. Earlier in the program, we heard directly from President Trump as he uh, talked with reporters talking about his upcoming meeting with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe at the White House. They're going to be talking trade, uh, also talking about the U.S.-China trade talks. Secretary Mnuchin of the Treasury Department and U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer. They're going to Beijing next week. In fact, did you hear this? Secretary Mnuchin had to cancel his milk and travel plans. Can't go to Milken. Can't go to Milken. He's got to go talk to Liu Hua, the Vice Premier of China, to keep on talking trade talks. And China, for their part, signaling, President Xi Jinping signaling he might be able to get on board with some of the reports that my colleagues uh, that have been blasting out over the Bloomberg Terminal uh, as well as uh, at other outlets, that they might be open to some more agricultural buys, maybe even getting on board with some uh, allowing for U.S. companies to make some purchases from an intellectual property standpoint, protecting intellectual property and force technology transfers. With me to help navigate all of the policy as well as the politics, Mark Ross, founder of Caracol Global, a globalization firm which helps businesses navigate these Rough populous waters of times. Mark, thanks for uh, Mark. Look, Mark is a soccer fan. And, huge, yeah, huge soccer fan. Manchester and, United, Juventus, and so. Ben Chang. Chelsea, go Blues. And Ben, that's Ben Chang. He is former White House National Security Council Director of Communications. Your first time on the program. Woohoo! All right, Ben. We just heard from my colleague Nancy Lyons about how the CIA got an Instagram account. So what is this like? Are, 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 is the intelligence community like? Going to be tweeting? <laughs> uh, fun answer. Um, uh, uh, the first rule of Instagram club is don't talk about Instagram club. It's fight no, club. The, fight, fight club. Exactly. Um, you know, the, the serious answer is- a great is, book, by the way. One of my favorites. Is uh, being a former government guy, uh, we look at all the various channels at our disposal to communicate okay. to a wide group. The fun answer is, look at the plants in the picture, right? They were very tongue-in-cheek how they staged that photo. Okay, okay. So there's like, this is this is like what I love to do on this, on this show. Here is a guy, Ben Chang. <laughs> He's worked for George W. Bush, Barack Obama. Yes, he sir. was the communications director for the National Security Council, the NSC. Okay, so take us into the room when all of the staffers or whatever and all your phones are tucked away mm -hmm. and, and you're, they're like locked away because you can't go into work no with your phones, cell phone. No phones in the situation room. So you can't text. So actually, if you work there, you're like, oh, I was I was if you don't text somebody back, you could be like, oh, I was 
you know, in the situation room or something. Well, imagine a room where you're discussing putting the CIA on Instagram and no one can actually pull up Instagram. Well, take me into that room. Take <laughs> me into that room. How does that even work? Seriously, actual question. Take us into that room and how that conversation would go in so, a serious way. So, I, of course, I cannot portray how this administration would have that conversation. But in previous administrations, it is a conversation about what, what story do we need to tell and are we doing a good job on the channels where our audiences need to be? And can we have fun and add a new personality to what would be a staid, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, old image of an institution like the CIA? I mean, there's something just very kind of fun, the idea the CIA is on something like Instagram, where I think just a couple of days ago we saw a chimpanzee thumbing through Instagram, didn't we? Right. So there's a sort of right irony there. What Especially when they're grappling with how, I don't know, Russia and hostile foreign governments are uh, – Taking advantage of social media platforms? There is absolutely an undercurrent, which I would hope someone in the room said, do we realize we're engaging on social media platforms that we have been uh, perhaps fallen prey to or the platforms or we through outside foreign interference? Absolutely, I would hope that conversation had occurred. But ultimately, I think uh, you know, credit to is it Gina Haspel or whomever signed off uh, saying – Look, this would be a, a platform that will stay on brand, but it's something we should use to reach out to the young kids these days. All right. So the other big story this week uh, that we, we were covering earlier, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She is the political referee. You guys are soccer fans. I mean, she is the political referee of navigating the likes of everyone from freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Democrat from New York, a freshman member, Joe Crowley, who lost to her was on our show earlier this week, and he was saying, it is, you know, he said, you know, maybe I'm not the right messenger to say this, but a lot of these Democrats who won, they weren't the AOC brand of the Democratic Socialists. They were actually in suburban districts that flipped right and that they're, that they're like, that they're left to center. So is it, I don't know, is it, is it, when, when we hear about impeachment as Speaker Pelosi, referee Pelosi has had to navigate this week, Mark, how is she going to do this? I mean, especially as the calls from the impeachment, not just coming from her caucus, but now on the campaign trail. Yeah, I think Nancy, as we've talked about before on the show, I mean, she met John F. Kennedy. Uh, she comes from a long line of uh, political families. She's easily one of the smartest people in politics in the country. I think Baltimore was, City politics, too. Rough and tumble Baltimore City, especially if you've been following the mayor there. Current, yeah. Current, mayor <laughs> Pew. We heard your podcast about selling, that. Selling some, some rough... Children's books. I'm not making this up. She's an, an under investigation. Mayor Pugh of Baltimore holding on for dear life. They should investigate the typos in those children's books. Well, well they're no, I mean, we're making fun of it, but it's it's kind of crazy. She was like sent. Uh, she's allegedly she's denying this. Allegedly is accused of making money eight hundred thousand dollars worth in was order it? for uh, in order to do this. But go ahead. Back to anyway, Baltimore. So Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi. I think one of the smartest, stay on track, Kevin. One of the smartest politicians. I think. Uh, she's she's right. I mean, there's no short-term gain to say, hey, we're going to do impeachment. I think what the Democrats are going to do, you're going to see Nadler have hearings, bring Barr to the Hill, bring Mueller, drag this out throughout the summer, see if we can't get some more momentum. It's going to be on the campaign trail. Let the Democrats, like uh, Kamala Harris, bring it up, Elizabeth Warren. And Nancy is uh, saying, listen, let's just go forward, see what happens. I think she is doing a great job navigating this, spot on. Uh, to Follow through on the soccer analogy. I would just liken her to perhaps uh, a Zlatan Ibrahimovic who comes over from <laughs> Europe. And then, no idea who that is, and I played soccer my whole life. Go exactly, ahead. out in L.A., who uh, came from the Swedish national team and who is having a, a resurgence, a renaissance as a player, uh, finding uh, reserves of strength no one expected. Uh, Man, I think the plane. Speaker Pelosi is uh, demonstrating that. If anyone's going to have the uh, 
prowess to uh, land that plane, she will. Well, okay, but how does she do it when Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, is saying impeach, impeach, impeach? And for 20 Democrats running for president now, a question that former Vice President Joe Biden's going to get asked, they're all going to get asked about the impeachment issue. But where you sit is where you stand. I mean, Elizabeth Warren has one job, that is to raise money on a daily basis. Nancy's job, Nancy Pelosi's job, is to keep the House under control. Uh, they have different messages. And I think what you're going to hear, I think the Nadler strategy of having ongoing hearings every two weeks, dragging this out over the summer, they get Don McGahn on the Hill, have that subpoena fight. That's some really smart politics. Right. You keep there's, dragging out the report. There's two things. One is, I mean, to your point exactly, that uh, there's one job that the candidates have, and that is to have a candidate topic. And the other is that Speaker Pelosi has a valve, right? And she can uh, uh, turn that valve to let off steam as much as, as needed. Um, there's also public opinion, right? Polling has showed that, uh, a swath of America, while critical of the administration, uh, believing much of the Mueller report, is not in favor of impeachment. I think that the speaker has that in one hand and has that valve in the other to let off steam through these hearings and so on. And imagine Nancy Pelosi has told the entire American, the whole country, I'm not going to go down the impeachment path, but every day this week, I think the president has woken up and said, you know, there's been a coup d'etat, this report is bogus, there's collusion, delusion. Clearly, the report is bothering him, and he knows that it's a dangerous situation for him. Well, we actually have President uh, Trump talking on his way to a National Rifle Association rally earlier today. He stopped and talked when he was asked directly about whether he would be allowing former White House counsel Don McGahn to testify before Congress. And the president said the long inquiry of the Mueller report was, quote, enough. I actually want to play what the president had to say about, all, about this conversation that we're having. Here, here's President Trump. Democrats have never been angrier, especially now that their collusion delusion has been exposed to the world as a complete and total fraud. That was President Trump earlier talking about, well, he says, defending his administration. And coming up, we're going to talk more specifically about the 2020 election and what former Vice President Joe Biden's reentrance into the race this week means for a very crowded, crowded Democratic primary field. Panel stays. You can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. Check us out as well as my colleagues on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, and we're broadcasting live from the Bloomberg 99.1 studios in the nation's capital of Washington, D.C. You're listening to Sound On. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. It's not a beautiful day here in Washington, D.C., where I am. I'm Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio Chief Washington Correspondent Kevin Cirilli, where it's a rainy day here as we broadcast from the nation's capital, overcast day to be more precise. Uh, we're broadcasting live from the Bloomberg 99.1 studios in Washington, D.C. I want to welcome our national audience as we navigate through all things policy and politics, trade, populist waters. Uh, the president's going to be meeting with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe later this evening. He's going to have dinner, dinner with the Japanese Prime Minister, and trade talks continue tomorrow. Nobody wants tariffs. The Japanese don't want tariffs. The Europeans don't want tariffs. President Trump says he's a tariff man. Meanwhile, Secretary Mnuchin, U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer, they're headed to Beijing to keep talking trade with the Chinese. And President 
of China, Xi Jinping, he says he might be able to uh, get on board with some of the chatter coming out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in terms of, well, allowing for U.S. companies to make some inroads into Chinese markets as well as other issues. We're talking national security. Did you see this? North Korea leader Kim Jong-un met with Russia President Vladimir Putin earlier this week. Blink and you'll miss it. And of course, we're also talking about the 2020 election. With me for the hour, I want to thank Mark Ross, founder of Caracal Global. He's here with us in studio. His firm specializes in how businesses can navigate the populist tides and globalization. And Ben Chang, he's a former White House National Security Council Director of Communications for the Obama and George W. Bush administrations. And Ben, I was struck by this. The president was talking at the National Rifle Association, the NRA, earlier today. And he, I was listening and I was like, why is he talking about the U.N.? That's right. Good question. Of course, we can imagine that it was a way to uh, uh, have something to rail against. And in this case, it was the U.N. Arms Trade Treaty. What the is that? The U.N. Arms Trade Treaty. Treaty. Okay. What you did not expect on a rainy Friday to hear about. No. On White indeed, House Correspondents Weekend. That's right. But he indeed invoked it and then ceremoniously... Uh, signed us out of it, even though it had not been ratified. But what does this treaty do? Basically, it's an agreement that countries will rally around to establish standards for the trade of conventional weapons and to reduce the illegal, illicit arms trade, right? Um, that's what it does. What does it not do? It does not impact any member states, that is the USA, own laws about domestic gun control or ownership. So it really was a uh, a, a kind of paper tiger. There was nothing really to rail against. My concern about this is not only is it an, another piece of kindling in the fire to burn down our uh, reliance and support of multilateral institutions, but it is possibly harmful to our law enforcement and military and just public servants and citizens around the world because it hinders the world's ability to combat illegal trade of weapons, the weapons that end up in the hands of criminals and others. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for that lesson, Ben. And OK, so Joe Biden, he's in the race. This is really the big story. I mean, 2020 is on everybody's minds. And how is how is Joe Biden you know, going to navigate this crowded field? He raised six point three million dollars on the first day as a candidate. When I say it's on everybody's minds, I really mean on political observers here in Washington. It's actually on probably nobody's minds uh, outside. It's so incredibly early, but he's seen as the front runner, Mark. How does he how does he I mean, is he really the front runner? Is, is Bernie Sanders the front runner? No, 100%. Uh, Joe Biden is the front runner. Why? He has the gravitas. I mean, he was vice president for eight years. He was in the Senate for 30, 40 years. I mean, here's a man who has seen everything. He knows everybody. His Rolodex, he, did, he knows all world leaders on a first name basis. I mean, he is easily, as he said, the most qualified person for the job, without a doubt. Um, he's definitely the front runner. He's proved it today raising $6.3 million in 24 hours, more money than any other candidate has raised so far. He also added 65,000 new email names to his list. I mean, very impressive start for So ma- most of the top candidates, they tout their first day cont- contributions as a show of support from their voters. Beto O'Rourke, the former Texas congressman, he got 6.1 mil on his first day, and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders got 5.9 mil. I mean— I don't know. Go ahead, Mark. This is, but you got to understand, Joe Biden is only the most money he ever raised in 20 years as a senator was like two million bucks. I mean, this is like a stack for him to like his big uh, Achilles heel with the Democrat Party, like Democrat operatives. They think he's lazy. They think he's not going to raise no. the money. No, 
You no, can't say Joe Biden's lazy. No, when it comes to fundraising, he doesn't no, like to raise to money. So the like, fact that he uh, came out of the gate so strong is, is a good a, thing. He's very serious. Like he's taking it very seriously. And he has a team around him they, that's taking it. Uh, that's seriously. the point. The team, I think they probably read these these uh, comments and decided that we need to bulk up that operation before we even uh, turn the lights on. But from a financial services perspective, uh, Senator Joe Biden represented Delaware, where a lot of financial institutions are an economic engine, not just in the state of Delaware, but uh, in in that whole entire region. Uh, How does does that economic record on an issue like Glass-Steagall, for example, uh, how does that impact or how will that be portrayed uh, by the likes of Senator Warren or, or even like Kamala Harris. No, of course. I think the Democrats that are running in the primary are going to try to find ways to like uh, agitate the base, so to speak, with some crazy vote he had in the 80s. But at the end of the day, if you're listening to Joe Biden's message, he's riding Amtrak. He's middle class Joe. He is about bringing the country together. And you could say, go through my record. But at the end of the day, I have the leadership. I'm going to support yeah. the middle class. And I know everybody in the world. I'm ready well, to, to go. piggyback on that, the one, one of the things that, that Biden can point to just by sheer dint of experience is a record. Now, admittedly, there are bumps in that record. There are hiccups. There's things that Do he's Do you want t- a record when you're running for president? Well, so this is what his strength has got to be, right? And the, the, the thing that we'll watch, and he's demonstrated to an extent so far, is the ability to say, and I've learned, and I'm going to apply those lessons. And frankly, with a large swath of the field, as well-intentioned and aspirational and idealistic as they are, they don't have the ability to do those two things. Well, President and, Trump took – go ahead, Mark. I was, was going to say, and two lessons that no other candidates have. I mean, he lost a wife early on. He's lost a son. I mean, here's a man who has suffered great you know, personal loss. He's come through. He's very resilient. I think that is something – I mean, he, this, you know, I don't want to sound all patriotic, but, I mean, Joe Biden really is kind of the American success story, and that is something that a lot of other candidates can really talk about. And the one thing about the Democratic field, Kevin, thank you, is that there's a lot of amazing success stories, American stories in the field. And just as a, as a citizen and a patriot, that's an exciting thing for me to watch, and I would hope that Democrat or Republican, you see that, that there's these amazing stories. Well, President stories. Trump says he's too old. Did you see this? President Trump took a shot at the former vice president and said, hey, he might be too old to run for president. And so Joe Biden goes on The View, ABC's The View. Uh, and they, The View hosts were asking him, are you, are you too old to run for president? And here, here's what former vice president Joe Biden said about his age. Here's the former vice president. Hopefully uh, I can demonstrate not only with ages come wisdom and experience that can make things a lot better. He's actually a year younger than Bernie Sanders, for, for what it's worth. And I got to be honest here. You know, I, look, I'm, I'm a younger of a younger generation, <laughs> but I don't think it's anybody's right, in, in, in whether, no matter what line of work or what political stripes. I mean, to be like someone is too old. To, I mean, who are who is anyone to say? So I find that's interesting, and I'm not sure that helps the president from a political standpoint with senior citizens. Like, yeah, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty rich for a 72-year-old President Trump to tell a 76-year-old man he's not qualified to be president. Yeah, yes. What about that women? Four years is the is the big, yeah. What about women? What about Anita Hill? How has he navigated the Anita Hill uh, back and forth? He, he called Anita Hill. He was on that com- he chaired that committee. Uh, during the Anita Hill testimony, she gave an interview to the New York Times and said an apology wasn't good enough. Is he able to navigate this? I mean, because the, the broader question is, forget about age, even the specifics. Not, uh, in this era, in this day and age, is he able to navigate that? So profound insight alert, uh, times have changed. And this is going to be something that won't go away. He will need to continue to address this both in word and behavior. 
and comportment on the campaign trail. And, and this is something that is important for us to watch. All right. So this weekend is the White House Correspondents' Dinner. The White House Correspondents' Dinner. President Trump will not be there. And he actually, his staff sent out an email to all the administration officials and said, boycott the dinner. They are not allowed to go. And I can tell you that off the record and in private conversations with staffers and aides, they're like, I kind of wanted to get into that party or go to this party. But they can't. They can't be seen at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which is a big weekend here in Washington, D.C., celebrating freedom of speech and democracy as well as it used to represent it's, – it's kind of gone through some stages. It used to represent in the Obama administration and the Bush administration a really like rare moment of brevity where people could catch their breath and, and, and whatnot. Well, not anymore. So last night I'm at the, um, the Irish ambassador's house, okay, at the Bites and Bylines party. Great party. And Sean Spicer's there. Remember him, Sean Spicer? Sean Spicer's there. And there's some reporters. I mean it's White House Correspondents Center weekend. There's reporters there. And they're asking Sean Spicer, who is literally in attendance at an, a White House Correspondents Center event, though technically he no longer is in the uh, in the administration, if they liked if they, if they supported the boycott. And he said, "You can celebrate quote You can celebrate the First Amendment and all this without necessarily the fanfare." Uh, and he's back in President Trump. It was you know Sean was there. There were some Democrats there. It's a great weekend, Ben. I know you're going to be around, Mark. I'll see you around as well. And that's if – go ahead. Well, you got like – you got a couple of seconds. A couple of seconds. As a yes. former administration official who attended and as a former DJ who would play at the party, You were a DJ. That's I right. I DJed. I think that it's actually a chance and it's not apparent outside the city for people to let down their guard a little and actually be, behave as, as regular humans. As humans. And even with the celebrities that would come in to actually get an insight into Washington a little Best bit. Best song you ever put on your playlist at a White House Correspondents' Center uh, party. Susan Rice was behind the DJ booth, me and my wife, and it was Prince. All things Prince. Prince! Always, always gets the floor going. And I was, so does Bruce Springsteen. I want to thank Ben Chang and Mark Ross for joining me. Happy White House Correspondents' Dinner, everybody. Happy weekend. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Appreciate you tuning in. That does it for me. You're listening to Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.